Hi, and welcome to the Ready for Polyamory podcast. My name is Laura Boyle, and I'm your host. Today, we're going to once again be talking about abuse in polyamory. This is the second part in our three-part series. Once again, I'm just going to give you a little bit of a content warning. We're going to be talking, frankly, but not particularly explicitly, about abuse in relationships, in interpersonal and intimate relationships. And so if this is something that you are particularly triggered by, you perhaps should consider not listening to this episode or listening to it when you have the resources to take care of yourself directly after listening to the episode or while listening to the episode. That said, today we're speaking with Claire Travers of Polypages. Uh, and speaking with her about this topic of abuse in polyamory. Claire is the head of Polypages, which is an academic initiative about polyamory to sort of look at polyamory through the lens of academic writing and to look at it through a sort of lens of how we write and speak about polyamory. Polly Pages has a podcast and a website. You can find all of their projects online uh, and their links are in the show notes. They are partnered with the network La Red to combat abuse in interpersonal relationships and you can find information on that in the show notes as well. So I'm really excited to be here today with Claire Travers from Polly Pages to talk about abuse in polyamory, which is not a particularly happy subject to talk about, but it is an important one. Claire, for any of the folks who listen to my podcast who don't know about you or the project at Polypages, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, first of all, I'm so excited to be here, a long-time listener. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Polypages is uh, an academic non-monogamous podcast and platform focusing on the sort of literature and academic, academic intersection um, in non-monogamy and polyamory. Uh, as part of that, we have a couple of like flagship projects. And uh, one of them is the abuse and polyamory work that we do. Uh, we facilitate research about that. We work with uh, intervention actors or service providers to help make their models and understandings of abuse inclusive of polyamory. And um, we have run a couple of events um, about this, although they are not for uh, public consumption anymore because the people that were speaking of them were victims of abuse and obviously your listeners should know at the top of this that we are not going to talk explicitly about any kind of essay or specific instances of of abuse um we're going to try and navigate this for a place of like sharing knowledge and not from a place that could potentially be triggering but if you have any concerns whatsoever if you are worried um i hope that you will contact uh, the network the red which is our partner um, in the USA or Refuge in the UK, and we'll share those um, those numbers. In yes, the those links will be in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Perfect. So I really appreciate you coming on to talk to me about this. I think folks have a mental image of what abuse in relationships is like that is informed by a very sort of wide societal understanding that includes all of these underpinnings of mononormativity that we've talked about on other episodes. Can you give us sort of a working definition of abuse to run with in this episode? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's a nice way of framing it as well, because no definition of abuse is the be all and end all. And more often than not, people will provide a long list of red flags. And if more than five of them, let's say resonate, Mm -hmm. that's the, that's the, that's the warning sign. But 
for this episode, let's use the one that I usually use, which is a pattern of behavior with the design, intent, or consequence of making somebody unable to leave a situation. And I like this, it's not a perfect definition, but I like this definition for a couple of reasons. The first is that it talks about a pattern, um, which now enables us to have a conversation which differentiates between abuse, which is a sustained pattern of behaviors, versus harm. Mm-hmm. because it's important that we are able to talk about instances of harm without escalating directly to abuse. Harm is a necessary but not sufficient condition, which means that abuse requires there to be harm, but harm does not equal abuse. Right. You can easily have a situation where there are harms happening, but where because they're not in a pattern or there's not certain other conditions met, you're not actually being abused. Yeah. And this pattern um, behavior, this is like very common when we see all of the definitions of abuse. The the idea that this is a sustained pattern is very, very important. Um, Obviously, we are human beings. We're bumpy. We bump into each other. We not physically, but, you know, we rub we we rub up against each other. And sometimes that can be painful. And if you're in a healthy dynamic, you'll talk about harm in a constructive way. And mutual care will mean that you can navigate to a place of minimizing that harm because you're now aware of it. In an unhealthy or toxic dynamic, it could potentially be abusive, um, those conversations will not end up happening and you'll find yourself recognizing the same harm over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the reasons that I really like it. The other reason that I like this definition is because uh, you'll notice at the end part, I say with the design intent or consequence, making somebody unable to leave a situation. And the reason that that is important is because it removes the necessary condition of the intention of the abuser. Now, Mm -hmm. this doesn't mean that people can unintentionally abuse. That's not the case. But if we get stuck on that as being a a necessary condition to define abuse, what we end up doing is having to defer to the abuser. Was this Mm -hmm. what you were trying to do? Is this why you were doing it? And -hmm. the abuser can simply say, no, it was never my intention. And therefore, this isn't abuse, which can be very disempowering for communities and victims when they want to talk about the the cycles that they're seeing. So that's the reason why I like those. There's not a perfect definition, but that's what I use most often. Right. It's a good working definition. No definition is going to actually cover all situations because every relationship is different. Also, every person who is abusive is abusive in their own manner. So listing there he's are uh, here are these 20 warning signs if you have 10 you're being abused is not helpful if no. you're someone who is suffering repeated patterns of harm that fall into only one or two of them you are likely still being abused it's mm. that repeated pattern situation and the intention or yeah if we're removing the intention in order to not make it placed directly on the abuser the consequence of what's going exactly. on exactly and there are plenty of of amazing models that go taxonomically through what the the different types of abuse are uh the one that i've worked the most with is the duluth wheel of power and control um which talks about the eight types of abuse that can happen um there are plenty of of i mean refuge and the network i read but they'll both have lists of, of red flags and say like if any of these are spiking any concern for someone you love or for yourself consider reaching out and a lot of these service providers are quite good at screening um so I, I would really encourage people who are concerned to go for them um but 
the other reason that I really like this, and I think what I really want to talk about with you on this podcast, is that this definition um, enables it to be about leaving a situation. Mm-hmm. Not defining this as something that happens within a relationship or any type of relationship specifically makes it easier for us to have an inclusive discussion about abuse. And we have to remember that abuse only recently began to be included as something that could happen in same sex um, or same gender relationships. So we are still talking about models that were made in heteronormative structures, let alone mononormative structures. So we are using these models that are maybe not perfect and we're trying to adapt them to have conversations, difficult conversations in our community. So I think using this definition, which I'll repeat, it is a sustained pattern of behavior with the design intent or consequence of making someone unable to leave a situation. This can be applied to any situationship, right? Your partner and spouse, of course, but also your metamor, your hinge partner, your comet lover. Any of those could be a situation in quotation marks. Yeah. And I think in general, one of the struggles of polyamorous people when sort of finding themselves in situations where repeated harm is occurring is being able to seek help or assistance in working out whether abuse is happening because a lot of therapists don't have a conception of what is and isn't healthy in polyamorous networks and so you end up in this position of well i tried to seek help but Hmm. either somebody sees your relationship in and of itself as a harm and then you sort of retreat into the network where the harm is happening which isn't healthy for you or things like this Mm -hmm. Um, And I know I'm calling out therapists in that case, but it's also family members, right? How many of us have the benefit of having family who really understand what's going on and will give advice that's not based in, you know, everything about this relationship is weird. So, of course, you should just leave it, which then makes people retreat. Hmm. Absolutely. And this is why I was so excited to work with the Network Lorette to make their uh, model like relevant and accessible to polyamorous folks, um, not people engaging in non-monogamy, because under a mononormative lens, um, let's say, uh, because under a mononormative lens, you're right, there's lots of things that would appear to be a red flag, which maybe that isn't even the concern, and then you end up with a complete red herring conversation. Or it's a concern if you're monogamous, but if you're non-monogamous, it's... It, it presents slightly differently. And one of the things that um, we did, I think, last year is we, we went through the Duluth Wheel of Power Control and we made examples that were relevant to non-monogamous situations. And I think that was quite helpful just to have examples out there that are in the non-monogamous context of things like using coercion and threats, um, minimizing, denying, and blaming, using privilege. And I think that that's integral to moving this conversation forward is that we continue to have examples. And I want to shout out uh, another creator here, actually, who's a polyamorous black girl. Alicia makes great content um, about abuse and polyamory, including, I believe, a workshop. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, they speak from a place of, of great, like, personal eloquence about the situation, which I've really appreciated. And and we've collaborated a lot on, on stuff, which is really cool. Um, like she was on the the panel that we had a couple of years back and 
in general, I guess, are there types of abuse or types of harms that build into this pattern of abuse that occur in non-monogamous networks that don't necessarily in monogamous networks? Or is it just a matter of kind or intensity? I think when we're looking at taxonomies of abuse, so emotional abuse, economic abuse, technological abuse, for example, um, it's about making those relevant to your relationship. It's about finding a way to put your own lens onto this. Mm -hmm. And those, you know, a taxonomy is only helpful. A label is only helpful until it's not. So if it helps you, use it. If it doesn't help you, don't use it. But I don't think we need to literally redefine the wheel here, right? Mm -hmm. We don't need to act as if the abuse that is happening in polyamory is so unique that it requires its own language. Um, because often it is just a presentation of different facets of what what we often it is a, a presentation in terms of facets like i'll use an example okay mm -hmm. um so for example in the duluth wheel of power control there is an element which is about using male privilege um because this was written in the 70s when it was believed that abuse was a, a man to a woman. In fact, mm -hmm. I think the original Duluth wheel was like the battered woman wheel, which is a horrible way to think about it. They've come a long way. They're, for the large part, removing this their gendered language now. Mm -hmm. um, one of the ways that we conceptualize that in a non-monogamous space is the use of privilege generally. And what is one privilege that turns up in non-monogamous spaces and not in more normative spaces? Couples privilege. Oh, I saw you about to jump in. <laughs> that was very well, I was about to answer. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is obviously a whole type of dynamic that's been missed out of the wheel, uh, it's been missed out of the model. We don't have good discussions about it. I think this is one of the reasons why there is usually a pretty fierce discussion going on about unicorn hunting. Because for some of us, it might feel like this is just consenting adults, like looking for what they want what's the problem but for other people we can really see this as a potential like fertile ground for potentially like a weaponized couple's privilege that can actually lead to the unicorn the third the dragon whatever you want to call that person mm -hmm. um being on the receiving end of weaponized privilege um with the design internal consequence of making them unable to leave the situation so for example if you move in to your uh triadic family structure but your name isn't on the lease mm -hmm. could not be a problem might be fertile ground for couples privilege being weaponized yep. so that's just one example of contextualizing what we already have are there situations which are super unique in polyamory absolutely do we need a brand new way of talking about this no right we just need examples given to support groups or service providers who are working in this so that they can see the way that it might manifest if there are more than two people involved, you know, financial abuse in the form of, you know, you've moved in with people and you've given up years of uh, working time and now you have more trouble getting back into the job market because your partner and Meadow were supporting the household or whatever. Mm, potentially. Again, it's all about this pattern of behavior so it, right. one of these things would sound like very trivial to the listener but if you exactly. imagine but if you've got six yeah if you imagine this is part of the cycle of of abuse and this is another way we can talk about abuse this is something that cycles for a while mm -hmm. it won't and then it'll be really bad and then you'll get this forgiveness stage um 
So I'm not going to give any of these examples in a larger context yeah. because it would be triggering. Um, but you know, just just yeah. one-off examples maybe are helpful to contextualize that language. Mm. I think another really helpful area where we can turn to to get examples, and this is what I'm currently researching as well, which is um the models that we have around understanding of cults. And I know that people hate to talk about cults and polyamory because we already have such a bad rep. Um, mm. But they do actually hold really interesting models for understanding how group dynamics can be manipulated, um, how someone can be both the victim of that manipulation and perpetuate it. And this mm. is really, really crucial because one of the things that's really limiting about modern normative understandings of abuse is that there is one abuser and there is one victim. Mm -hmm. There is a villain and a victim. And those two people are on different sides of the room. There's no one in between them. When we expand our definition of relationships, we obviously have metamors that are both being manipulated by that abuser, but are also being aided to help the abuse in somebody, the abuse of somebody else. Mm -hmm. We have a little bit of a harder time in this situation, I think, ascribing blame or ascribing a clear understanding of what's happening because there are so many more people involved. Mm -hmm. And so some of the research that's been done about cult dynamics can actually be really helpful. And I think offer us a lot of fertile ground for discussing abuse in the future as part of a community context. Mm -hmm. Seeing the ways that folks can be enlisted to be part of the process of abuse to others in their community and can in that way be both a victim and someone who's abusing. Exactly. Um, so one of the the nice uh i mean that, that it's, it sounds quite fun this label but i guarantee you it's not is mm -hmm. flying monkeys right oh yes this is uh for anyone that hasn't heard this i believe this comes from the wizard of oz it does yes it, it's um, the wicked witches flying monkeys yeah do you blame the flying monkeys for the hurt that they're doing yes but are they ultimately the per the person that's manipulating the whole situation no are they maybe even being harmed themselves in a different way, potentially. So how do we talk about these individuals? How do we talk about people that are still in relationships with known abusers? How do we talk about people who are accomplices to that abuse, but may also behind closed doors or, or maybe even in public be, be being coerced, threatened, intimidated? And right. oftentimes people don't realize they're that person until the sort of scales fall from their eyes and they realize, oh, this is very deeply unhealthy and I actually have lost my power and control in this situation and I now can't leave. And that's when it becomes quite dangerous. Right. It can take years of community shift for someone to realize that they've been in this position of aiding and abetting someone who is doing bad things to them and to others. But for them, it was, oh, I'm not the problem and I'm not that bad and this person is kinder to me. And it doesn't become clear for many years. Absolutely. Uh, I think that there is a, maybe a helpful distinction here between maltreatment and abuse, mm -hmm. but it's quite thorny, as you said, yeah. and it does take years to figure out which of these is happening. Um, I think it's very hard for us to have this conversation without touching on some like known examples, um, which have really, I think, shaped the way that polyamorous abuse is, is understood by a lot of us in community organization positions. And it's still an issue like that, this, this sticky middle ground of this person that may well be being abused, but is also perpetuating a cycle of, 
let's say minimizing denying and blaming or mm-hmm. helping the uh, known abuser still intimidate or coerce other people in the network it's difficult it's really thorny and the only way that we can navigate this i think is is with rigorous honesty and transparency and kind of trust that the community um will will have the tools that we are making to be able to have that that in a that discussion in, in a place of like constructive compassion yeah and it can be deeply challenging in relatively small communities like polyamorous ones because a lot of the time we're relatively insular in an area or we all know each other or these sorts of things. Maybe that's more prevalent where I am because we're not in a big city. So you don't end up so much with multiple groupings as with, well, everyone is kind of a a shrub of intersecting branches here to some extent. Um, you end up in positions where when someone realizes that they've been in an abusive dynamic or a highly toxic dynamic and leaves it, they don't necessarily feel like they can turn back into the rest of the community or bits of the community splinter as a result of this, Mm. depending on who sort of sits in what position relative to this. Mm. It's not always metamors. It's sometimes community members who are like, well, but I've known this person for 15 years. So I'm going to join in on the conversations about how crazy their ex is. Right. And this kind of difficulty and harmful language is something that becomes really common in smaller communities. And like, I know that I'm more sensitive to that because I live at the intersection of the kink and polyamorous communities in my area. And so we as a collective are not that big and struggle with this a lot when things come to light. Mm. And unfortunately, what we have seen in the last few years is that the victims that come forward pretty bravely and a great personal cost end up kind of leaving the polyamorous or kink communities um, Mm -hmm. because it is just exhausting to have to constantly explain your abuse. Um, And to defend yourself when the abuser and the people who are still with them turn around mm -hmm. and go, it's clearly about this person. And I don't want to like linger on this for an enormous amount of time, but I just want to note that our community has been doing a lot of sort of grappling with for the last few years, the situation around the allegations against Franklin Vo, who's one of the authors of More Than Two, mm-hmm. and sort of how we're going to treat More Than Two going forward, given that there were many, I believe 11 people who came forward and credibly accused him of abusive behavior. Um, and over the years, we've been sort of dealing with, okay, how many people are going to deplatform him? Who isn't? Is this going to be a weird battle line drawn? And what's going to happen? Um, and I think it's just notable that this has come out even among sort of some of the most prominent people in this community. There is no protection from this, no matter how privileged or leadership thoughty you are in a given community yeah um i think that you're right to to explicitly talk about this i do think that i try and take from that position like from that whole situation um that is simply the one we know the most about mm-hmm. right because this was a very well-known author um and uh it was between the two co-authors and, and many other people that were also well-known and honestly I feel like the the 
way that we are interpreting abuse in other places, because there are more than just this one example, yes. is informed by that. It's, it's hard to have a conversation that isn't about that. I would say that the it's, it's very easy for us to think about this as something that's happened, mm-hmm. but I think it's important to note that it's still happening, right? There's still smear campaigns against the victims. There are still just thorny lies, like weird shadow moves going on. And really the only way to navigate that is to opt out completely. Um, and that's like for some people, that's what they have to do. But mm-hmm. obviously what that means is then like you're not engaging with it. And the only way that we can move the community understandings of abuse forward is by engaging with this. There are some questions that's thrown up for me, like mm-hmm. why is it always like happening, right? <laughs> we seem to be as a community cycling through oftentimes this white man who are platformed as being like a, amazing a polyamory or like this is part of their charm and they can kind of use it and they're very charismatic and then it takes a number of years before it's like oh several of the people that knew them best that were involved intimately with them and publicly with them um have called them out and then we have to go through the process of deplatforming and usually those victims end up having to leave the space because it is exhausting and it's also very personally traumatic and then they get smeared and they get darvoed which is when someone denies and then attacks and then tries to basically reverse the victim offender role it's a common tactic and I kind of have like my back of the notepad ways of navigating this, but but we we are very far from having clear understandings of what to do as community organizers in that space. So yeah, we need to have this conversation linked back to that because there's no point talking as if we can have a conversation without it. Right, but the I think that the, in the room. Yeah. But I mean as as deplatforming goes, the deplatforming of Franklin Vogue was relatively effective. But of course these people pop up somewhere else. He just moved his whole platform over to somewhere else. And um, there are still people that are potentially still being coerced or intimidated or smeared uh, by him and, and other people that remain closely tied to them, these flying monkeys. So, yeah, we need to be explicit about it. But can we continue a conversation without this being about Franklin Vogue? Yeah, absolutely, because... He's not the only one. He won't be the only one in the future. Um, and to be honest with you, like, I I don't see more than two as remaining to be a core text as, as someone that comes from the literature of polyamory. I get mm-hmm. asked about it all the time. It's just, it's it's kind of old now, right? I mean, apart from anything else, it's, it's an old text. Um, there are great new books coming forward that are taking up that space and those, those bookshelves. Right. And because we're living in a time where there is immense social change happening, you can really see when books are older and becoming outdated in a way that you maybe couldn't 20 years ago in the same yeah. way. And there's also just more people talking about this than there were 20 years ago, which means that Absolutely. it's very easy to just run your events without platforming potential abusers or known abusers. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's not that hard. There are literally millions of people doing polyamory that I can get to speak at one of my events. Why would I deliberately invite somebody that is problematic 
yeah, we don't have to get everybody's problematic fave to come teach because there are plenty of new voices who can become their less problematic favorite. Yeah. And there's also, I mean, oftentimes I find that people that are insisting on keeping those voices at the forefront of their events are not running particularly good events. Like it's quite boring because those people always come from the same sort of slither of society. Like they can only speak mm -hmm. from their personal experience. They're not academics. They're not doing research. You know, they're, they're just talking about their own personal experience and that's limited by your own personal experience. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think that we need to continue to talk about community response to Franklin Vo in order to talk about community response to abusers. Yes. I don't think talking about a single abuser is the point here. I think that we need to be able to talk about abuse and why it is that the polyamorous community seems to constantly fall for this, the same things over and over again. Yeah, my impression is that a lot of that is because we are a relatively insular or closed community. So someone who seems to be speaking from authority within this community and who seems to know what they're doing has a greater capability of reaching people who aren't as well informed about it because it's becoming more socially well known. But it certainly hasn't been in the last 10 years yet, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the, the things you mentioned, the kink community, I think one of the things that I've really... Uh, encourage people to take from that is this idea of vetting just because yes. somebody sounds like they know what they're talking about just because somebody seems to be platformed highly it's worth getting from them some references and seeing what they're doing it's worth kind of like having a couple of people that look very different from them and just asking them about it right mm -hmm. oh like i've noticed x and x spoken at these events but you haven't ever spoken at those events like why is that that might be a good way of thinking about it. So you're looking for references, but you're also looking for potential lines of friction that might be invisible to you if you're just entering the community. Yeah, and if you're seeking out information in a general way about polyamory, trying to seek as many people who sort of look different to one another or come from different backgrounds can be really helpful in expanding your knowledge base. Mm -hmm. If everyone you follow is like me, a mid-30s white female who lives in the United States, you probably don't have a wide enough range of resources that you're seeking to have a good idea of what's going on. Yeah. Like, as much as I'd love to toot my own horn and claim that I cover everything, I absolutely do not. No. Um, yeah. And I'm also a, uh, for those what for those listening, not watching, I'm also a cis femme presenting white woman. So... You know, this is a, a discussion that could use enrichment. Uh, I'm mm -hmm. really glad that you have two more coming on this that provide maybe a slight, you know, varied source. Um, but there are some other, as I said, kind of things that I think about when I'm trying to figure out um, who to essentially believe. It's what, what it usually comes down to in a community. Mm -hmm. And one of the ones that I, I've, I think might be really helpful to share is who's being the loudest about the situation, right? If you imagine that you are going through um, like a, just an awful relationship that actually afterwards really has racked your ability to trust somebody else and has made you rethink polyamory completely and it's been incredibly traumatic and difficult and then you choose to speak out because you don't want this person to continue being able to reel people in. Mm -hmm. What are the chances that you then want to talk about it every other day on Twitter or every other day on your blog? Mm -hmm. Very then, well. Yeah, you don't have the time or energy to do that, right? 
generally the people that are trying to kick up as much conversation as possible are also just trying to kick up as much mud as possible because then if the water is filthy enough and it's muddy and difficult to look through you're just hoping that people won't even bother looking as mm -hmm. i said some people just turn away from the whole thing they just peace out who does that benefit it, it benefits it benefits the person that was uh, doing the harm it means that it's more difficult to discern so generally the person's being the loudest is actually the person that's uh, oftentimes the least trustworthy in that situation uh yeah, someone who's darvoing the situation exactly the person's darvoing the situation um how you respond to darvo is also i think quite helpful to put out there because unfortunately if you are coming forward with an experience of abuse it is something that you will deal with it you will get smeared you will get and i really wish that that wasn't the case um but the abusers have learned from the best and that's what they will do. Um, DAVA requires a couple of things to work. Uh, it requires that the person speaking is seen by the community as an authority on truth. So therefore, when they deny that something is true, people be like, well, this person is very believable and credible and I believe this person. It requires that the, person, the people listening believe that there can only be a victim and a villain and that this dichotomy is immutable. That's the second thing that DAVA requires. And finally, it requires you to speak. It's very hard to attack your body of work and your character if you are being quiet. Mm -hmm. They deny, and then you say nothing. It makes it a lot more difficult for them to attack your response because you haven't made one. And I found this to be very difficult when you're being, especially because abusers, who have known you personally will know what buttons to press. So they're probably very good at trying to get a rise out of you. They're mm -hmm. requiring that rise. You know, I cannot stress this enough. They will require that rise to be able to execute this move. So. Yeah. And they mm -hmm. will use it in terms of, look, this person is clearly the attacker and not uh, the victim. I am the victim because look how badly they react to me. Right. This exactly. must have been what they were like in our personal life before when they're attacking me about. Right. It's kind of uh, also appealing if you want to get philosophical about it. It's appealing to this idea that like emotions are bad. And if you're having an emotional response to something, that means that you're an unhinged woman or at least feminine, uh, which is obviously terrible and blah, blah, blah. blah. It's, it's very logical positivist for any of my philosophy nerds out there. That's my first mm -hmm. degree. Um, so they're really relying on that. Um, and oftentimes it's the hardest thing is to stay silent because you're like, no, I just, I just said my bit. Like, why isn't anyone listening to my bit? Why mm -hmm. isn't anybody looking at this? Let it stand. Let it, let, let the silence, if you can, speak volumes. Um, and also it's just, it's, it would be exhausting. Mm -hmm. And part of this, I think part of smear campaigns is to try and exhaust you to the point where you'll give up, unfortunately. So I know that sounds really bleak, <laughs> but I think it's important that we actually begin to discuss how the mechanics that we're seeing play out here as, as people in a, in a community say it's small, right? It's still quite small. We need to be able to talk about this. And the only way that, that we move to a place where it does not become dangerous or uncomfortable or costly for a victim to come forward is we explicate the way that people respond to that in terms of like a, a fuller picture of what that would look like. 
So what can folks do if they see two opposing stories of a toxic relationship breaking down in which one person alleges that there was abuse and the other goes, well, actually, they were abusing me, right? How do you sort of navigate that except by, as you said, noticing who's being louder and sort of yeah. flinging more mud around? Are there other things that we as a community can use to try to navigate these situations? Or is it just trusting our guts and watching for who's doing a full reversal of what went on? Obviously, there are no hard and fast rules. Um, and no one is going to have, like, if anyone says that they have a hard and fast rule, don't, don't mm -hmm. trust them. <laughs> uh, noticing or he's or assume the they'll be wrong. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, noticing who's playing the most mud around, I think, is, is really, really helpful to um, to kind of discern when Davo or minimizing blaming is happening. Um, get to grips with understandings of abuse because the thing is that the abuse doesn't stop when that person leaves, right? That's that's why we get smear. That's why we get Davo. Um, the abuse, especially if it's by public, like in a public dynamic, will be drawn out. Mm -hmm. um, I think maybe the, the one that dominated everybody's feeds for a long time was Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, which we won't com comment on. But as an example, is something which is the relationships ended years ago, but there is mm -hmm. obviously still stuff happening. There is still interpersonal violence happening. Um, so it would be really disingenuous just to imagine that public individuals, even in, in our little niche, could have an ending of a relationship that would then be like, cool, line done, nothing after this happens. I think we can look to people that have really good models for abuse and have uh, have an understanding of abuse. We've got often intervention providers or service mm -hmm. providers um, we can look to them to help give us uh, screening tools. Uh, so mm -hmm. the network by Red actually does do a screening tool um, workshop, like a, a training for people in person. Um, and that can often be very, very helpful. If you are reading a book about abuse um, that is speaking without any, you know, academic uh, input, um, don't necessarily take that whole circle. I, I have seen a chapter in a, in a recent book that was particularly boring, uh, un, unhelpful chapter on abuse. And I was like, and it was about abuse and polyamory. So I was very disappointed. I, would, mm. I wanted it to be so much better. Um, I would strongly suggest that people that are making events um, make sure that they're setting up from the beginning uh, safeguarding initiatives. So this doesn't mean just that you have tip line doesn't mean just that you have a training. It means you have to have all of these elements. You need to actually follow through in a really transparent way. If you are running events, whether it's a munch or a conference or whatever, make sure it's very clear what you believe your duty of care is in the situation, what you believe you'll do in that situation if there are any issues. And when in doubt, um, I have a very strong stance on believing survivors. And carrying with their consent, carrying the burden of those narratives. So it's not about that person. I think that's kind of the next level, if you like. Right. You can protect your event from abusers. But if this happens, what do you don't, do? Yeah, don't let that victim stand out on a ledge by themselves and get mm -hmm. stuff smeared about them. 
you know, with their consent, offer support. And we do offer a lot of support to people uh, behind the scenes. And that's not something that we can talk about, you know, on our Instagram or a TikTok. But like, there are ways that you can operationalize that. It requires the consent of the people involved. Um, and it also requires like a, a lot of tact, I think. And that's something you can't necessarily teach. Um, and, you know, but it, it can be very lonely. This is, I think, probably the thing that we hear the most from victims is that it just feels very lonely. And that that's quite sad. And oh, yeah. Especially if you're in polyamory, like you're in a relationship with seven people and you feel lonely. This is terrible. That's so sad. Um, so don't let those people be alone. Like one-to-one, there's, there's a lot that you can do uh, for people who are coming forward about their abuse. I agree with all of that. I thank you so much for being with me. Do you have any sort of final thoughts you want to include before we wrap up? No, just to thank you so much for having me. If anyone is interested about reading the survivor stories of Franklin Vo, they should go to Brighter Than Sunflowers. We'll put the link in the description. Obviously, those aren't all my stories, but you can freely find them. There was also uh, a bunch of recorded stuff done, um, which we'll also link. I'll give you the links for that about Franklin Vo's abuse. Um, in terms of polypages, you can find us www.polypages.org online. You can find me at polypages, that's P-O-L-Y-P-A-G-E-S, polypages on TikTok and on Instagram. Um, and you can also join our mailing list for our ad hoc events that we do. We'll do these like webcast events of a panel of speakers talking about uh, a, a different topic about polyamory. Um, we've done ones on decoupling polyamory. We've done ones on publishing in polyamory. So those are all available on our website. And then of course you can subscribe to the podcast, Polypages. Great. Thank you so much for joining me. So you can find all of the links that Claire mentioned in the show notes. You can also find links to the Network Lavred and Refuge, as well as a link to an event that the Network Lavred is running this weekend. Um, regarding abuse, they're having a digital sort of coffee event to learn more about their programs to support folks who are in abusive relationships. You can also, as always, find the various links for Ready for Polyamory, including my class this weekend on the 25th. Uh, about relationship anarchy applied to play partnerships, which I'm running for Wicked Grounds. Uh, that's on Saturday afternoon at 2 Pacific, 5 Eastern. Thank you so much for listening. Have an amazing week. Next week, we are back with the third part in this series, which is specifically from a survivorship angle and talks a little bit more about community response and the various ways that survivors um, have sort of had to deal with different community responses in both the polyamorous and kink communities.